Hello and welcome to the 37 Signals podcast. My name is Matt Linderman. We'll have Jason Fried and David Hennemeyer Hansen coming up in a minute. Today we're going to be talking about making people pay. When it's a good idea to give people something for free, when it's a good idea to charge for it, how do you know how much to charge for it, how do we set our prices here at 37 Signals, and then we'll also have a brief discussion about non-consumption, targeting people who've never used a product like yours before. But let's start off on this free versus pay idea. Here's David talking about when giving something away for free can be a good idea. I think the key thing or the key lesson is that free is not necessarily bad when it leads to something. That something has to be pay. Uh, giving something away for free is a great marketing device when it's leading up to something that makes your business run. It just seems like a lot of businesses on the web forgot that there's a step two. Step one, give something away for free to learn the customer. Step two, make them pay for your real product. If you just have step one, you're just giving shit away for free. And that's not any way to run a business. It's not any way to be sustainable. It's not any way to stick around for the long term. So all this focus on free doesn't make any sense at all if you don't have the step two conversation. How is this going to be backed up by a profitable business model where you can actually see the relationship? All right, we give 100 gizmos away, and that's going to cost us $100. And then we get uh, 20 customers in from these 100 gizmos, and that's going to make us $40. Great. The process worked. We made twenty dollars more than we uh, than we spend on this free experiment. But you have to make that just back of the envelope calculation because otherwise it's it's all for nothing. Like that's what we basically did with all our products. Every single product we have in the portfolio have some sort of free version. But the only reason we continue to carry those free versions is that we make so much more on the paid plans that it costs us to give away the free trials. A good way to think about this too, just in kind of a brick and mortar or whatever you want to call it example, is uh, you know if you walked into a bakery, obviously you got a free sample of a muffin, and then you could buy a muffin. That makes sense, and we're all used to that. But you can't just walk into a bakery every day and take a muffin, like a whole muffin. And like, imagine a bakery that didn't sell muffins; they just gave them away every day. And they're trying to get enough customers in the door to eventually sell the muffins. But for the first Three years, they just gave every muffin away. Like that probably wouldn't work very well because they wouldn't be able to stay in business. But the fact that they have free samples it makes sense. Same thing at like you know, you you know you walk through a department store and there's like they're spraying cologne on you, or you go to the cosmetics counter or something like that, and they're giving you free samples. That makes sense because they have something that they can sell you as well. But if they just gave you free bottles of cologne, like full bottles of cologne, or they gave you you know whatever makeup you're buying or something just for free forever, then that wouldn't make sense. And it doesn't sound like anyone would be confused by that example, but on the web, it seems like people are still confused. They think that 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 the the giving away everything and eventually figuring out how to make money later model works, and it might it might work for a few small lucky companies that make it happen, um, but for most companies, it just does not work. It seems like what you're saying is that you know you need to start charging for something right from the start. I guess uh, the next question a lot of people seem to be asking is how do you know how much to charge? So how do we go about setting price points? I think fundamentally, um, a lot of it's just pull some numbers out and see if they make sense. You know, would you pay for this? Would Is this price seem fair to you? If, if you were using someone else's product and it was priced this way, would you feel comfortable with that? That's, you know, kind of pretty much how we did it up front. Obviously, you have to figure out how to cover your own costs and that sort of thing. So 
if you, if you can't make money at 20 bucks, you don't charge 20 bucks, you charge 24. So you got to get that out of the way first. But after that, I think it's a lot of it's just kind of gut and um, what makes sense, what feels right. Also, there's a lot of you know, pricing theory out there if you want to read up on it. But I think fundamentally, there's some natural price points that seem to make sense. You know, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, or 49, 24, 79, 99. Numbers like that seem to make sense, uh, and it worked out pretty well for us. And also, one other thing about pricing is pricing isn't doesn't have to be permanent. If you, you know, charge 12 bucks for something and Two years later, you want to change it to 15, or even a year later, you want to charge, change it to 15. If you can make a, a case as to why you think it's worth 15 now, change your price. And uh, some people get upset for a while, I'm sure. But for the most part, um, as long as you're still delivering more than $15 worth of product, people are still going to be very happy with it. So one of the key things for us is to make sure that the plans or the tiering between the plans makes sense internally. Uh, I've seen a fair number of applications launch where you would look at the cheapest plan and then you'd say, why would I actually ever upgrade? Like, there's no way I'm going to use more than, I don't know, 100 invoices um, a month. That was one of the examples. I forget which one of the invoicing apps that, uh, that had this issue. But I remember looking at their chart and just thinking, this pricing model does not make sense internally. The prices in relation to each other, there's two big jumps, or it's just not the right flow. You want to make sure that the tiering has a nice flow where it always feels like, hey, I should actually, I should be upgrading, right? Shouldn't I? Because for, for us, for example, for Basecamp, um, we usually have the jump be twice the money, but three or four times the benefits. Um, so you get a lot more uh, sort of whatever your metric is for determining these plans, uh, projects, active projects or space or whatever it is. You want to lure people in, and, and that just works really well if there's a nice progressive jump uh, where you're, you're getting more than you're paying for, because it's a lot easier to extract more money from your existing customers by sort of encouraging them to upgrade rather than it is to, to find a bunch of new customers. We had this problem originally with Backpack, where we started the product with a $5 plan that was actually good enough for pretty much everybody who needed to use it just on a personal basis. Well, the problem is charging somebody $5 a month, it's pretty hard to make the anywhere near the same kind of profits we were getting for, for Basecamp. So it just didn't make sense to us. Um, and we've sort of had to learn that lessons, lesson pretty hard in, in relationship with Backpack and figuring out how we can reprice it and, and get people to, to move up to more paying plans. And ultimately, the solution for us was to stop focusing uh, exclusively on just individuals and get back to focusing on small businesses. The most recent pricing that we've done is on our latest product, Haystack, which brings together web designers and potential clients. And I know there was a last minute shift on the pricing for that product. What was the story behind that? Yeah, we originally were going to charge 300 bucks a month, um, which is what we charge on the job board. So we thought that was a natural number because it worked pretty well on the job board, but we weren't really, I don't think we really thought it through enough. And we realized that it works on the job board because it's, uh, it's a one-off thing. You, you buy a job for 30 days and, and that's it. Uh, and you can buy another one if you want as, as well, but it's just a one-time charge. And Haystack is going to be a subscription system where you, you pay X amount of dollars per month, every month until you cancel to keep your ad up in, in the big format. So we just thought that, you know, that's about, I think people, when they think of monthly charges, they usually think of annual charges. So 
300 bucks a month is you know $3,600 a year, and I think that's a pretty heavy price for for a lot of, uh, especially a lot of freelancers and independent web designers, which we thought would make up the majority of, of Haystack, and it seems like it has, or small companies at least. So we decided at the end to just go with $99 a month, which is you know still uh, you know about 1,200 bucks a year, but it's it's I think a lot easier to to take, and um, I think it's a much more natural price point for something like Haystack. We, by the way, we made that decision, I guess, in the last three days before launching. I think it was about three days or so. We said, you know what, three hundred is just—it's just too much. It just doesn't feel right to us. Ninety-nine feels right to us. So, and everyone pretty much agreed. I don't think we had much of a debate on that, and uh, we went with it. We we sort of had a similar situation back when we were launching uh, or developing Campfire. The original pricing model for Campfire was actually a per chat pricing model, where we originally a vision that people would set up a date with a client or something uh, where they would all come together and meet in this room and somebody would enter their credit card number and they'd be charged, I don't know, a few bucks for using that room for that one meeting. Or they could buy a clip card or something like that so they could use it perhaps five times for X amount of dollars. And we got pretty far down that road until we realized that, hey, wait a minute, would we get our credit card out for something like that? Would I actually enter my credit card into a system just to have a one-off chat with somebody? And the answer was no. There's just no way that we would pay for our own product. If you're not going to pay for your own product, don't expect anybody else to either. So you have to really establish that as the baseline. You would have to be interested in pulling out your credit card and paying for that system that you're building if somebody else made it at that price point. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And is there any notion that your initial price maybe should, you know, if you have to err one way or the other to go too high because then you can always come down or maybe on the opposite side, go too low and at least you'll, you'll build up a user base, either of those enter into your mind? I think it's really hard to err on the side of too low. Raising prices is incredibly painful. We've done it once on uh, Basecamp and we've probably got... Some of the worst hate mail we've ever received uh, on Basecamp was due to that uh, price range. Uh, we did it, I think, once on Backpack as well. Actually, I think that's where we got some really nasty hate mail, too. We raised the prices at some point from $5 a month to $7 a month. And those just 2 bucks a month just brought out some of the worst I've ever seen in, in any customers we've had. We've been called everything, like thieves and snakes and liars and you name it. It was, um, it was very painful. So I can absolutely understand why people have sort of a little anxiety about getting pricing right. But on the other hand, it's a lot easier to go the other way around. If you're announcing your product at, at $100 a month uh, and you realize, hey, wait a minute, we can make this work at... $80 a month, and we think that we're going to bring in a lot more people. You actually set it up in such a way that it's going to look like a good deal. I mean, obviously, you shouldn't just be doing this just to do it. But the penalty for going down in price is uh, nowhere near as, as severe. In some pa- cases, it can even be positive uh, compared to going up in price. I would say, so, though, that... Oh, sorry, David, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Oh, I, I would say that one of the things you have to think... A big thing about pricing is just perceptions in general. And one of the things that I'm not a huge fan of is, is coming down in price on things because it makes it seem like your other price was sort of a failure kind of or, or didn't work. No one was buying it. So you have to now discount it so people buy it. Um, so I think that's 
maybe one of the downsides to lowering a price. But I mean, David's right that you know, obviously, going up in price is is harder to do. My my general advice would be um, that uh, I, I think a lot of the prices I've seen out there um, are pretty pretty good. It seems like people are come up with numbers that are pretty fair. The problem people I, I, the problem I see people running into is that their free version just gives away way too much, and um, that's where I think people are going wrong. Is they're giving away too much on the free version, and then people aren't really moving to pay plans because they really don't need to. I've seen that happen over and over. So I think if you're trying to figure out what numbers to worry worry about, I'd say worry about your zero dollar number first and make sure that you're not giving away too much on the free plan. Anything else on pricing that you think listeners would be interested in? The one thing I can say is it's actually interesting because it's it's the number one question I think I, I get um, during the office hours phone calls that I'm I'm getting. People are asking you know how do you guys come up with price? How do you figure it out? There just definitely seems to be a lot of people who are I think afraid of pricing. Uh, I'm not sure where it comes from, but people are just afraid that if they either get it wrong, they're they're screwed forever. Or um, uh, I think it's another way to procrastinate. By not be able to come up with a price, you just keep thinking about it and keep working on it, and which number's right and whatever. And I think at the end of the day, you know, just look around and come up with some fair numbers. Um, and then, like David said, you know, whatever your tiers are, make sure that your the tier up is more than twice as good, even though it's only maybe twice as much. After our talk on pricing, we moved on to discuss what Clayton Christensen calls non-consumption. The idea that instead of stealing part of an existing market, you should try and create a new one. I asked David if this was an important part of 37 Signals philosophy. Absolutely. I think that one of the things that we've always tried to do is look at whatever we're doing right now uh, in terms of what we're trying to achieve, not in terms of the tools that we're currently using. I'd say by far our biggest competitor for pretty much all our products is email. It's not that email in itself is doing what Basecamp is doing in terms of functionality, but it's doing what Basecamp is doing in terms of the higher mission. Lots of people are using email as their primary way to uh, run a project, organize a project, get people informed, and so on. Um, and trying to attack markets in terms of like the underlying need seems to be a much easier way to come up with something that's then original. If you're looking at a market in terms of the products that are already available and trying to say, well, we could probably make a similar product that just gave you, let's say, more projects or slightly tweaked one screen. The potential for you to have a breakout success is, in my mind, much less. When you have a product that's designed to compete against other products on a sort of an even playing field where you're just one-upping them, the way you win is then by massive marketing or massive sales channel stuffing. So I guess that can work pretty well if you're a Microsoft or an IBM who sort of have these things lined up. But if you're a small company or a startup and you're trying to compete on the same battlefield as somebody else who's already entrenched and already there, the likelihood that you're going to make any serious stand is probably not very big at all. Versus if you try to just basically invent your own market space and invent your own category by fusing a few things together or looking at what people are really trying to achieve when they're using Basecamp or 
even let's say Excel spreadsheets or something, if you can identify a, a use case within that space that nobody else is attacking directly with a product, um, basically attacking non-consumption, people are not using a specific prop or product that was intended to solve just that problem, then I think your chances of having a breakout success, something that will sell itself, is much, much greater. Yeah, I mean, the best in the, I, I totally agree. And, and if you haven't read his books, uh, Innovator's Dilemma and Innovator's Solution, you really ought to find some time to read them. They're not only are they just really informative, but they're beautifully written. They're really well written. And we talk a lot about how writing's important. And that's those two books specifically are so well written that it's just a great lesson in writing in general. All right, that'll do it for this episode. If you want more info or want to see links related to what we discussed, go to 37signals.com slash podcasts. We post a summary with links there of each episode. Thanks again for listening.